David Vincent is a social historian at the Open University and the author of A History of Solitude. This is David Vincent. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, all right, great. I'm here with David Vincent. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you because you wrote a curious book um, called A History of Solitude, which sounds, um, it, it is quite literally a history of, of solitude, which sounds like a very, um, uh, you know, abstract thing to write a history of. Why exactly did you feel motivated to write this book? Well, the initial uh, idea came from a previous book I'd written on the history of privacy. Uh, and I realized that one of the ambitions that people had for their private lives was to withdraw from the company of others. But nobody had written about that. Nobody had tried to understand how solitude as an idea and a practice uh, had emerged over the last two or three centuries, uh, and equally how notions of loneliness and suffering attached to being by yourself uh, had developed. This was maybe three years ago when I set about researching the book. Of course, then COVID happened, and suddenly the book was extremely topical because large numbers of people have had to review how they spend their lives with others as they've been locked down in their houses. Uh, many people have discovered a new desire for solitude uh, as they've been forced to crowd into, in, into rooms which once were empty. And many people have also found new forms of loneliness uh, as their former networks of company had broken down. So by the time the book was published, um, that's, uh, it, 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 at the beginning of the pandemic, it suddenly hit a popular nerve and the book has been very widely uh, reviewed and read uh, since then. I'm one of the lucky people, in a sense, from COVID. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's enhanced my, my project rather than otherwise. Well, it, it's interesting to hear you say that uh, a previous book of yours played into writing uh, this book. And it, it would seem to me, when you mentioned COVID, I understand that you have another book coming out about the sort of a social history of the pandemic. Um, it, is there a similar through line from A History of Solitude to your new book? The book starts with the, the, the new book, which is called The Fatal Breath, which uh, we published later this year, uh, starts with the, the lockdown in the UK, which was on March 24th, 2020, starts with the sudden imposition for the first time in anybody's memory uh, of an absolute control uh, over people's movements. Everybody was required to stay at home uh, except for an hour's exercise unless they had to go to work or they needed a health appointment. So suddenly you were locked in your house. uh, And that, of course, raised all sorts of questions about how you got on with people, what you did with people, uh, how people helped you in your times of need, but also um, how you could have too much uh, of the company of others. And then there was this second, and, and in all countries and states as well as Britain, tragic dimension of COVID, that um, once people went into hospital, their relatives were not allowed to see them. Um, and if they were dying, they died alone, uh, except with maybe a nurse with them. And dying alone, literally alone. Yeah. Uh, 
is not a common experience in Western societies. Uh, and those who died had a terrible time, and those who were bereaved uh, still are trying to come to terms with that experience. All the structures that we have in place are helping th people through that moment of loss. Uh, we're just frozen. Uh, so being by yourself at that moment uh, was of absolutely critical importance. Yeah, are, are you familiar with the work of Pauline Boss on ambiguous loss? Nope, haven't, haven't read, what's the surname? Uh, Boss, B-O-S-S. -S. Um, I had talked to her for this podcast uh, a while ago, and it, it was interesting how she had done sort of these studies of ambiguous loss, things like, uh, you know, someone, uh, a family member who's suffering from Alzheimer's. And so you've lost the person in a sense, but they're still present. Uh, or someone who uh, a family member goes missing. And so you don't know if they're alive or dead, hence ambiguous loss. And one of the things she pointed out was that COVID was very much like this. As you talk about, you know, people dying alone or people unsure of whether or not they're going to be able to see their loved ones again um, and unsure really of when this is going to end. And in her, from sitting from where she was, she kind of had a, a good vantage point to understand how people were emotionally reacting to the pandemic. And I feel like you would be in a similar position as a guy who understands privacy and above all solitude in this mm -hmm. moment. Um, were there things when the lockdown initially began that you could kind of foresee or were, were there um, certain hypotheses of yours that you felt were confirmed by the pandemic? Uh, about the nature of aloneness and solitude? Well, I mean, there are two really rather contrasting dimensions to that. Um, there is the um, journey uh, into hospital, into ventilators, into death, which we've just been talking about. Um, at the same time, what comes through as you, as you read around the subject and trace it through over two years, is for the most part just how adaptable the British population and other national populations were when faced with this, these quite extraordinary controls over their behavior. The government here waited too long uh, before imposing lockdown, maybe by at least a fortnight too late, which caused thousands of deaths because it didn't think that the electorate would put up with it. And they were entirely wrong about that. Uh, the evidence is that ordinary households said, right, this is how we're going to have to live, look back to the resources within the household for entertaining themselves, uh, started to cook in more imaginative ways. There was a big run on bread flour in, in, in the UK because everybody started to make cook uh, break their own bread all, all of a sudden. Um, they, do, they became proficient users of Zoom, which most of them had never heard of, let alone used uh, before to keep their uh, family and friend networks uh, going. Uh, the government's very wisely uh, allowed an hour's exercise a day, which was absolutely critical because people could get out and take the dog for a walk or, 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 or whatever and get into nature. And it was very fine spring in 2020. Uh, so in all sorts of ways, the mass of the population just got on with their lives, adapted the resources they had in their family um, and showed no signs of breakdown or even overwhelming anxiety. A lot of studies done trying to just to locate surges in depression uh, or, um, or anxiety. And there was some, some movement at the beginning, but not much 
and thereafter the indices of anxiety were pretty flat throughout the, the, the two years. So there is a story to tell, which I tell in my book, um, of a resourceful, resourceful, adaptable population uh, who didn't trust much in the government after time, given how it was led, uh, but did trust the doctors, uh, did trust the medical statistics, did trust the official messaging about what was happening. Uh, and by and large, got on with this. And now we're two years in, um, and they've just taken the controls off much too early in many regards because the COVID figures are rising again. But they haven't taken them off because there'll be riots in the streets. People are pretty fed up now, pretty tired uh, of the whole business. But they're not rebelling. Uh, it's been, on the whole, a conformist population, which, on the whole, uh, has managed... It's their, their lives with resource, with stoicism, uh, and, and with some courage. Yeah, and, and you say that, although, of course, there have been notable exceptions. Uh, Boris Johnson, among them, who, who in a sense, did not, uh, not in a sense, he, he didn't abide by the lockdown. Uh, and that's caused a huge scandal. <laughs> so, so you say over there in Vietnam, I have to tell you that he has yet again denied in Parliament that he broke the rules. Oh, okay. So got to keep that into account, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yep, yep. But it, it, there have been, I mean, in the UK is, I suppose, one story. Um, but there have been cases in Canada, uh, certainly in America, where people are uh, rebelling against these restrictions. And as you said now, at this point, even though perhaps from, a, you know, the, the standpoint of case study or, um, you know, case counts, et cetera, uh, perhaps it would medically be the wise thing to continue locking down, but people are just so fed up with it. Um, when we talk about something like solitude and being alone and being particularly cut off from the rest of your social fabric, um, do you think that's something that is best, that, that serves people best in small doses or that, I mean, it seems hard to make that a way of life? Well, the, the, the argument running through my solitude book was that what really matters is not whether you're in company or whether you're out of company. What is fundamental is your capacity to move freely between those states. Hmm. So that if, you, if, if, you're, if you're by yourself out of choice, well, you know that you can go back to company. And when you can't go back uh, or when you're forced out of company, then it's called loneliness and then it's a, a source of real grief. But where you can make that transition back and forth, then solitude and sociability can be very good partners. Uh, now, that's the problem, of course, when you get a lockdown, because that movement becomes much more difficult. You can go out for your walk an hour a day, but to get time by yourself becomes um, harder. But what you have to remember is the patterns of behavior which were in place before COVID came along. About 30% of all households in the UK and more in some European countries, in Sweden and elsewhere. 30% of households are now single-person households, mostly occupied by people who've chosen to live like that. They prefer to live by themselves, than move in with parents, or take in children, or continue in satisfactory relationships with their partners. And those 30% of households had, had over time, um, developed all sorts of strategies for leading 
reasonably satisfactory, in some cases, very satisfactory lives. So that cohort, when everybody got locked in, said, well, yeah, join the club. We, we've lived like this for a long time. Yeah. And if you um, now have these constrictions, so do we. The disabled, who are most vulnerable to, to, um, to loneliness, again, also said, you can't go out. Well, we've never been able to go out. Uh, but we've found ways uh, of, of, of getting around that. So it, it, there is a tendency in the, in the commentary to regard lockdown, which was without precedent, as a total break in history and in time. Whereas for most people, it was just another way of living within which they could use and embody a whole raft of strategies and resources which they had developed in their previous domestic and private lives. Yeah, I, I am curious when you talk about the ability to shift from states of solitude and sociability as being sort of the linchpin here, where if you're unable to make that transition, then that produces loneliness. And I think I agree with that. Although it, it perhaps it's worth examining the different reasons why you cannot switch between those states. There are obvious examples like lockdown, as you mentioned. Uh, and then I, I feel like today there are a lot of examples that are much more um, insidious, where, for instance, there are a lot of people who are perfectly capable. There's no, there's, there's no hand stopping them from moving out and interacting with the world, but perhaps they get uh, just sort of sucked into a, a digital world and interact with people through a screen, which... Well, that's, that, that, that certainly um, is, a, is, is a widespread apprehension that um, digital communication is disrupting and, in the end, dam really seriously damaging our capacity for face-to-face -face social interaction, that we've become so used to looking at a screen, we don't know what to say to people if we meet them uh, in the street or, or in our families. It's destroying the art of conversation. It's destroying the um, multiple forms of physical communication that take place when you are in front of somebody. And I've looked at that with the... Um, with the pandemic, and it's it's difficult to be so pessimistic. Uh, people took to the to the social media, including many older people who'd never previously used it very much, with huge enthusiasm and invention. As soon as the um, uh, lockdown started, they not only um, uh, just talked to each other. Um, in, in my case, um, regularly and frequently to my children, my grandchildren, which, which many other people did. They were also inventive. They ran quizzes, organized quizzes between family members. They ran book clubs when everybody read a book and then talked about it. They ran film clubs when um, uh, everybody watched a film at the same time and then got together to talk about it. Um, they engaged in forms of learning. I, I happen to have been based in the Open University in the UK which does supported online learning, demand for their courses increased fourfold within about a week of the, of the lockdown. And you can see the digital world, the social media, which over the last 10 years has become increasingly fraught place, increasing concerns about privacy, increasing concerns about the role of the, of, of, of the global companies, actually in some ways returning to the original prelapsarian vision, where it was this wonderful free device 
for connecting people over distance and for communicating information uh, and all sorts of other forms of knowledge over distance. And that's what happened. Uh, I think if lockdown had happened a decade earlier, when there was a massive digital divide in most societies, um, I think it'd be much, much harder to get through. I agree. Times at the UK, maybe 96% of the population were online in some way. Um, some weren't very competent, but when they saw that they they had to use it, if they were ever going to talk to their grandchildren again, so they got their own children to teach them how to, to make it work. In my own self, I mean, I, I, said, I mean, I'm talking to you on Zoom now. I had never used Zoom uh, before this happened. Uh, and as is generally the case across society, so I think in some regards, social media had a, rediscovered its function, uh, although in another part of the world, the debates about privacy and censorship and um, anti-vax propaganda was, were still raging. There was, the problems were still out there. But at the same time, people were saying, well, the hell with that. I need to talk to my grandchildren and I will, and I will take pleasure from that. And so will my children take pleasure from talking to me and it, it helped to get us through that and going for a daily walk I think the two critical things which 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 kept people um, just about sane in this whole process I, I think you're right um, although I also think more than one thing could be true at, at one time here and what I mean by that is yes clearly I, I mean I think about people who went through the, the Spanish flu and I remember seeing some article where people were kind of mocking uh, people during the Spanish flu who they threw a parade in Philadelphia or something like that. And, you know, case counts were rising and, you know, this was supposed to be, you know, Oh, look at these silly people, just like the silly people who refuse to wear masks these days. And I'm like, man, back in the early 1900s, I can't imagine being locked down. That, that would be, that, that would be rough. Um, so I agree with you there. Although I also think that people who grew up, um, like myself, who grew up with the information, with the IT revolution already affected and ongoing, where we have computers and the internet um, from a young age, I think people like that are much more pessimistic about these technologies. And perhaps it's, as you mentioned, uh, this wanting to return to a Garden of Eden that never was. But I think there's another component to it where the kinds of, certainly these digital interactions don't replace face-to-face human interactions. There is something lost here, is there not? Oh yes, Um, there clearly is. And um, uh, touch disappears for a while um, and and in some ways is still still not back um, with us. Um, There's a whole raft of communicative strategies which in here, in just talking to someone face to face, which are lost. I don't think that um, the digital revolution, the digital media, social media, um, successfully replaced the full range of human inter- interactions which were there before. And I think it already knew that. I mean, it, you know, people are capable of saying to themselves, this ain't perfect, but it's better than nothing, much better than nothing. And that, I think, was a view that they took uh, of it. Um, and in most countries, um, 
certainly in Britain, we'd get a lockdown for a couple of months, then it would be released and people would go around and visit their relatives. Uh, and then it'd be reimposed. I'll tell you one anecdote from my own life. Uh, we, we, we had a, um, a granddaughter born in, in August 2020, who we barely saw. Uh, in London, and then her, his, their parents came to see us for Christmas, and on Christmas Day, the lockdown regulations were changed, and they were um, had to stay with us for two months. Um, we're, we're, we lived some distance from London, and it was terrific. We had this small child growing up in our, in our midst for two months because of the changes in the lockdown uh, regulations. So th there were intermittent lockdowns, and then periods of, of, of release when, when, when some kind of physical contact could be renewed. Um, I, I don't think people were starry-eyed about the social media. They knew what it didn't do. Right. Uh, but they knew what life would be like if it wasn't there at all. And over the longer run, I mean, I, I looked at this in work I've done on privacy, the British population, and this is a local um, characteristic, have tended to say about the issue of um, privacy and the social media uh, that we know there's a problem, but nonetheless, uh, we want... We want to use it um, to the despair, in some respects, of the privacy campaigners who could wish the British population was angrier and more likely to support political intervention. Yeah, I'm curious also when we talk about this concept of solitude and that you've written extensively about, what is the actual benefit of it? I mean, I can understand the, I mean, I, I take great benefit from having alone time, I think everyone does, but it seems much more readily apparent what the benefit is of interacting with other human beings. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, I, I think, I, yes, I, I don't think that... Well, there is, of course, as, as, as you will know, a, a monastic tradition um, which uh, foregrounds the value of withdrawing from human company and, and, and instead uh, having a relation... Uh, a, a fundamental emotional relationship with God, but more broad, and, and there is a um, uh, around us now a whole range of meditative techniques uh, that, uh, that that people embrace um, because they they see importance in 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 that moment of isolated self-reflection. But I think for everybody, or for most people. Um, the opportunity just to, relate, to, 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 to to pause and recollect yourself, um, recollect your, your feelings and your emotions and your ambitions um, is important. Um, uh, obviously, by time to people vary as to how, how much time they want by themselves. But almost everybody can benefit from just standing back, uh, conversing with themselves, looking at the world um, without the pressure of people all around them. Uh, you can do that in any context, in a room, in a house, in a, um, in, in a purpose-built place of reflection, but also over the decades, over the centuries, walking out of your accommodation or your work into nature um, has been a very basic form of recharging your batteries uh, and, and taking pleasure um, in forms of beauty which are not man-made and which do not involve other people. Do you feel like there's something that, I mean, if you're an extroverted person that you, you actually, when you say recharging your battery, there are people out there who 
okay. they recharge the battery by being with other people. Do you think there's something that they could learn from the practice of solitude here? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'm a bit um, uncertain about whether the world can be divided into introverts and extroverts. As, I mean, there is, there, and there is work on this. Um, I think that it's, it's a much wider range of, of, of degrees of, of, of emotional need. Um, in, in, the, in the 18th century, where my book begins, um, the Enlightenment was in full flow. Uh, and there was a widespread belief that only by social interaction could you drive forwards knowledge and progress and invention, uh, and that you had to keep a very close eye on the solitaries and make sure that there weren't too many of them and that they came back into the fold. I think we've become, in the 20th, 21st centuries, much more relaxed about solitude, um, can see its value, and can see that moments of withdrawal don't necessarily deny the importance of social interaction. It's the, the old cliche, man is a social animal, um, still stands, but he or she is a social animal that can benefit from, from time off. Right, and, and on that note, when people, there have been a lot of great writers who have really talked about the benefits of solitude, of, you know, when you say about like going, uh, uh, on a walk through nature. I'm, I'm no. thinking of people like Nietzsche, who said... And Thoreau. Thoreau is the great American upholder of that. Yes, tradition. yes, of course. Um, a lot of philosophers just talk about like going on walks through nature, and that's where they get a lot of their, their good stuff. Um, mm. Is there any... Have there been any studies of what exactly is going on with the brain there? Why, why, do, why do we crave... There, there, there are more and more studies coming out now. Um, on, on just that just that topic, um, which are arguing that you don't have to um, go out into the into the mountains or or, or, or or the wilds in some form, that any contact with um, with the natural order, even even pictures, uh, can have measurable effects uh, on the brain. Uh, Britain, I think, probably more so than the states. Um, is a gardening country. Ninety-two uh, percent of homes in this country have got a garden of some sort attached to them. Um, and 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 I'm looking out at mine now as I talk to you. Um, and to be just out in that little bit of nature um, has a restorative effect uh, on the um, metabolism of of, of 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 the individuals and on the. Um, on their immune systems. Um, and I think this is instinctively known by a lot of people and now increasingly uh, the, the consequence of medical research. I see, yeah. And what is it, when we talk about loneliness um, and making it distinct from solitude? I mean, there have been uh, studies that have shown that the, the pain inflicted on the body is of losing say your entire friend group is uh on some levels corresponded to the level of pain that one feels when they lose a limb um mm -hmm. it, it's it's incredibly corrosive and lonely people tend to die earlier um unfortunately single people tend to die earlier as well um is there kind of uh i mean 
Even there are obviously d- d- degrees of in- intensity. Right. I'm extremely reluctant to endorse this notion that loneliness is another form of ill health. There's a much circulated um, and completely meaningless calculation uh, which says that it's as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> they, right. I, I, I take New Yorker to entertain myself, and there's an advert on the back page quite often um, for a service that provides meals for old people, which actually cites that 15 cigarettes a day finding. And it's just a cliche, it's, it's nonsense. Um, but at its most extreme, loneliness clearly is a destructive experience. And if we take back to COVID, um, in the UK, we've had about 165,000 deaths now. Um, it's nearing near a million, I think, in the States now. Uh, the calculation is that for every death in an organized society, you've got somewhere between five and nine heavily bereaved people. You take the higher figure, that gives a million bereaved people in the UK still around us whose experience of bereavement was especially destructive. Uh, and they obviously will vary and they'll vary in their social networks and, and, and the help that they can get. But that million people coming out of COVID um, are going to be suffering and they're going to be suffering from real destructive loneliness in, 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 in many contexts. More generally, in the book, um, I define loneliness as failed solitude. That is to say, it's being by yourself when you didn't want to be. It's being by yourself when you can't get out of that condition. It's being by yourself when you've fallen into that kind of social isolation by forces which you can't properly control. Uh, it, it's, it's the unwanted state it's, it's, it's the inability to change that state, which makes loneliness what it is. And if you can find a journey back to uh, other people, then, 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 then you can get over it. it. A lot of the data you'll find um, is, is, is actually playing fast and loose with categories. Everybody in their lives uh, experiences moments of loneliness. We, we make so many transitions now between different schools as we're growing up, schools and university, uh, different adult relationships, uh, different jobs and professions. In in earlier times, there were many fewer breaks in the way you lived, many fewer danger points that your social networks would get broken up and have to be remade. Now it's, I think, much more woven into the lives that we lead that we assume that if we go, let us say, to university, then for the first few weeks, we're going to have some trouble making connections, and some people have a lot of trouble. We assume that if we move to another town uh, or to another job, then there will be, or, or to another relationship, or, or, or leave a relationship, you're going to have the threat of loneliness for a while. In most cases, we say to ourselves, well, that's just the risk worth taking. Uh, this relationship isn't working. I'll break it up. Maybe lonely for a bit, but it's worth it. This job isn't doing what it should do for me. I'll find another one. Maybe I'll be a bit lonely. Those forms of loneliness um, should not be uh, bracketed with the intense forms like bereavement. Should not be the subject of medical intervention. Should not really be included as, as amongst the great ills of our time. It's just life as we know it and as we manage it. 
But within that experience, there are those, and quite a small proportion of the population, who really are in trouble and probably do need help uh, of one sort or another uh, to get through it. In the UK, we've actually got a minister for loneliness in the government. We've actually got a strategy against loneliness. Uh, the government's really worried about it, but I think more so than it probably should be. Yeah. Um, well, we're past a half hour now. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I love this subject. And I think it's really valuable for people to think about. And I was curious before we go here, what is your advice for people who find themselves in a state of loneliness, but want to turn it into a state of productive solitude? The fundamental requirement is that you embrace your condition um, as a choice and not as an enforced circumstance. If you try to think through why you're taking pleasure in being by yourself, why you want to take time by yourself, then you can have a, a creative uh, experience. But if you regard what's happening as something that's happening against your will, happening to you, then you're much more likely to be in trouble. You should recognize solitude as a potentially positive experience. You should have um, techniques for making use of that uh, experience, if only by going for a walk as was possible during the, 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 the pandemic or reading or whatever it might be. So equip yourself with devices that make solitude positive uh, and recognize that what you're doing is a matter of choice, um, which can have real gains for you. Fantastic. Uh, David, uh, the book is A History of Solitude. Uh, you have a forthcoming book. Uh, for people who want to find you or want to know more about uh, stuff you've written, uh, is there an easy place for them to go? Uh, yes, I, I'm an emeritus professor at the Open University, and you'll find my uh, web, web, web and email identity if you go into the Open University and, 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 and look me up. Uh, I also... Um, wrote uh, about 150 um, uh, blogs during the pandemic, which is still available to, to read. Excellent. Uh, and the blog is on your university page as well? Yeah. yeah. Great. Uh, David, thank you once again for your time and have a great rest of your day. Good. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Right. Thank you to David Vincent and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.